0: like me you grew up watching horror movies monster movies uh you know i'm a huge godzilla fan you know that i love the thing alien Uh, and i know you're all with me it's not like i'm talking about a bunch of strange films that no one's seen before why do we gravitate towards these films what is about them i believe wholeheartedly that it's the monster it's the monster design it's the creature design And being a filmmaker, being a horror film director now that is hopefully on the eve of creating his first film, his first big studio film, I am in the process of designing a monster. I'm in the process of of designing a creature. Now, I know I'm teasing you listeners, I'm not allowed to talk about which film it is and what it is that I'm doing, but I can tell you this, I can open my world of semi-frustration up to you guys because there's a lot of stress being someone that has grown and 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 loved these monsters how do i create a villain that fits into this ethos into the history of cinema how do you create a scary monster that affects everybody what are the qualities of a monster that trigger everybody's fear why is it that everybody was scared the fuck out of jaws when they didn't even see jaws speaking of monsters there it is it it was dead quiet in here until i decided to record this intro and then the monster that haunts me the leaf blower starts here in my house so welcome to the brand new episode of in love with the process i am your host mike pecci how are you I am here today to talk about creature design. I am here today to talk about designing a monster, and I'm here to give you a bit of insight into what I'm going through right now when I'm trying to create a creature that no one has ever seen before. It is a very scary, anxiety-ridden process where you're trying to create a creature that has a functionality within a film, has to do specific things, has to interact with actors in very specific ways, But it also needs to be something that is interesting to look at. Now, I've always believed, and it's probably because of my comic book roots, but I've always believed that the most important part of any creature is its silhouette, is the way it looks backlit by a lightning strike, right? Because that's what we always remember. And I am also a firm believer in showing less than more. Uh, I love a lot of the movies from the 80s. I love a lot of the practical effects stuff from the 80s. I'm going to use a lot of that in my film. But I also recognize moments when filmmakers are way too obsessed with patting themselves on the back with how cool their creature looks, that it steps into broad daylight. It's on the screen for about 15 frames too many per cut. And you just go, man, if you guys had trimmed some of that out, it would be twice as scary. Now... I wanna get into why that is the way it is. I wanna talk about what is truly scary about monsters and movies. Is it the effects? Is it the design? Is it the suspense? What is it? And um, let me be honest with you. Today's episode is incredibly selfish. I am in the process of hunting for the people that I wanna have on my team to work on my film. And so I'm using this show to dig around and find the folks that I really enjoy and I really want to get in touch with and it just so happens to help to have a very successful podcast thank you to you all for making it that way which allows me to get in touch with these individuals that would be difficult otherwise Um, and so today's show is a prime example of this I am incredibly excited because I am going to ask our guest today all the questions that I have as a director Which in turn means all the questions that you would have as a potential director for this sort of thing. So strap yourselves in. If you're somebody who uh, wants to make horror films and someone wants to make monster movies, this episode is going to be very beneficial for you. And why do I say that? Because I've recorded it and it has been very beneficial for me. (laughs) Uh, Welcome everybody. Like I said before, Uh, you're gonna have to deal with my voice it's a bit in and out i'm recovering from some stuff i can't get into it now but we'll get into it later but yes going through the process of recovering which has been affecting my voice today um and uh but doesn't mean the episode's not going to be good i'm excited do you guys know who i have on uh the amazing creative uh creature designer sculptor makeup effects artist uh a guy with over 36 years in the business. So if I'm gonna talk to anybody, I'm gonna talk to this gentleman here, someone that has been around it long enough, someone that understands how to work with clay, someone who understands how to work on sets, someone who understands how to take an idea, a loose sketch, a scribble, and turn it into a monster. I'm talking about Norman Cabrera. Norman's on today's show, he's been around for years. And some of you who don't know, who aren't horror aficionados and don't pay attention, don't get all the magazines, the horror rags, uh, what has Norman worked on? Well, most recently, for you young listeners, uh, practical effects work on the dogs, the demon dogs on the new Ghostbusters Afterlife movie. Uh, he also worked on Malignant, the effects work on Malignant. If you guys saw that movie, that weird thing that they do in that movie, he did that stuff. He has worked with Guillermo on the first two Hellboy movies and the most recent Hellboy movie, he created my favorite design for Guillermo on Hellboy 2, uh, which is the Angel of Death. I fucking love that design. Uh, one of the big reasons why I'm chatting with him. Uh, the Walking Dead's worked on that. Cabin in the Woods dragged me to hell. Look at the fucking talent that this guy has interpreted their ideas. We're talking Sam Raimi, right? Come on. Uh, House of a Thousand Corpses, Rob Zombie stuff. Going back to his original stuff, he worked on Gremlins 2 and also worked on Harry and the Hendersons. Uh, If you're on your phone listening to this right now, head on over to Instagram. Check out his Instagram account, and that is Norman Cabera Monsters on Instagram. I'll put the link in the description of this show. And he has been posting a lot of his designs, his creations, his work uh, over the past 36 years which is pretty fucking crazy. Uh, I'm excited about today's episode. I hope you guys are too. Before we get into it uh, I want to thank everybody for following me on Instagram. I want to thank everybody following the podcast Instagram. That's a love of the process POD on Instagram Uh, or following me at Mike Petrie on Instagram. Um, I am going as we sort of push into this year And hopefully, everything starts to run. I'm just going to be digging deeper and deeper into the stuff that I need as a director for this film. So, you're going to hear episodes like today, where I'm sort of talking, communicating with folks that are either helping me out design. We're going to get into all of it. So, hopefully, fingers crossed, this continues the way we want it to. And the only way I could do so is with your support. So, make sure you're telling your friends how crazy and cool and exciting this basically this is a new season so how this new season of the show is and make sure during our mid-roll reads you click on the links for the sponsors let the sponsors know that you're listening to the show okay those two things will keep us running and uh that's it Fuck okay. it. without further ado let's get into it let's get into some deep creature monster design with norman on the brand new episode of The Love of the Process. Thanks for being on the show, man. I'm a huge fan. I'm excited to talk to you.
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate that.
0: Um, I have been uh, a massive fan of the creatures that you've designed, sculpted, worked on. Uh, some of my favorite creatures in uh, cinema. Um, and uh, I, I just looking back at you, you've been doing this for what, over 36 years now?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I started in, uh, I, I moved to LA in August of 1985. Uh, and my first professional work out here was with Rick Baker. Mm-hmm. I had done a, um, a low budget horror movie in Florida in around 84 called Scarecrows. It was like a direct to video uh, VHS release. And, um, and, and, but then as soon as I finished that movie, I, you know, I, I came over here to work uh, in films out here. I, I got my start with Rick Baker. He, he, you know, he mentored me into, the business out here
0: <laughs> it's not a bad place to get your start <laughs> yeah, would you now did you grow up in florida is that where you came from
1: i did i grew up in south florida in a and um, a small suburb of miami called hialeah which there it's not you know it's just a typical suburb you know if you wanted to do anything you, you have to go to miami beach you know to like do anything really that fun yeah but yeah. you know mostly i i you know, worked on my monster masks and stuff. You know, as a teenager, uh, in my bedroom, and um, you know, worked uh, at an electronics store until uh, you know I got I got my my chops up. You know, to send stuff to Rick uh, to try to land a job out here.
0: How did you? Where'd you get the skills to do your masks and stuff? Did you?
1: I, I was a really avid reader of like you know famous monsters, Fangoria, uh. and at the time there was all these. Um, uh, really cool sort of uh, grassroots magazines called like Cinemagic and, and Starla, it was from Starlog press and, mm-hmm. and showed you the basics of how to do your own amateur filmmaking and super eight. And, and, and uh, you know, there was articles in there on how to make masks and how to do uh, really, you know, you know, ground floor type stuff. So um, there was a couple of articles in particular that, that, really blew my socks off and there was one that was that was like basically how to make a, a, a latex mask an overhead latex mask that's cool and that was just one of the things but i just you know i read this stuff like like uh you know i was rabid to learn how to do this stuff because i was obsessed with monsters since i was a kid so I, I i i sought out all this stuff there was no schools for this sort of thing at the time yeah so i thought, i just learned it all by trial and error that's cool man
0: did you have any sort of uh artistic training or like anatomy study or, or any of that or did you just jump yeah, right I mean, in, I
1: was, always in the, I, I was you know when i was a really young you know like probably when i was about 11 or 12 um i i originally thought that i would become a, a, a comic book artist because I, I loved you know <laughs> the work of john romita and gil kane and oh me and too yeah, yeah. And, and people like that so like i was already drawing um since i was a little kid And I I took to, that was the main thing I took to was drawing. And then when I discovered sculpting, then it was like, I just became obsessed with sculpting. So I had um, an artistic background just from being into it since I was a kid. So I I, I learned to draw really early on. Yeah. And then you just practice and practice and you you just get better. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Me too, man. I thought I was going to be a comic book artist for years and, uh i didn't get into film school because my grades were terrible i mean uh, art school because my grades were terrible and so uh-huh. <laughs> i ended up uh, going a different route and, and then ended up directing which which i love it sort of takes that's great yeah, yeah that's
1: that's pretty cool that's a that's a harder line of work to get into than making monsters <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah tell me about it because I spend about like 2% of my life directing and the rest of the time begging people to let me do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, it's funny because I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I've been trying to do that as well because I have a, a feature that, you know, script that, that I that I wrote and stuff that's sort of my passion project that I'm hoping someone, you know, lets me do one day.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude, tell me. Yeah, that's cool, man. That's rad. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, so you've been playing in the world of monsters and playing in the world of horror for so long. Uh, is it just sort of a second nature for you at this point? Are you just seeing monsters everywhere you turn? It must Uh, just get to a point, you know?
1: Well, I mean, I, I, you know, like I said, I mean, since I was a kid, I, I was completely absorbed in this stuff. I, I, you know, I grew up watching all those creature features type movies. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, the classics, the universal monster movies and all that stuff. Um, And, uh, you know, I, I just, it was it's been an obsession since I was a kid, like a horror and film fan. And, uh, you know, if you look at my, if you look around my office right now, it's, 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 it's just full of, you know, monsters really. (laughs) (laughs) My stuff, some stuff that I've made, you know, art from some other people, uh, you know, my favorite artists hang on the wall. Some of the stuff that Rick Baker gave me, um, some of the stuff that, you know, collectible, uh, aurora model kits and stuff so it's it, yeah it's, it's a, I, actually when you when you when i think about it when i look around i do all all i see is monsters <laughs> <laughs> every square inch of my of, of my office is is, uh, is jam-packed with the stuff but it's been that way since i was a kid when I, I i lined the walls of of my bedroom since i was a teenager with horror movie posters and and masks that i was making and 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 uh you know uh, so I, I it started with you know, creature features and, and watching that stuff on TV. And then um, Planet of the Apes was a big game changer for me, the mm-hmm. original one. Mm-hmm. Um, I was too young to see them in the theater. Uh, the only one that I saw in the theater was one that came out in 75, uh, which was B- Battle for the Planet of the Apes. But the ones that came out in the late 60s and early 70s, I was probably still a little too young to see it. But when they ran on TV, it was pretty pivotal. And, and I found out about this guy named John Chambers, who did the makeups. And, uh, it was, it was a big game changer. So that was probably step one. And then step two was, was, uh, discovering Rick Baker and Rick Baker, you know, had started coming through the, through the, uh, pages of famous monsters. And they would talk about incredible melting man and, and Octoman and some of the more low budget stuff that he was doing. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly, you know, he became a, like a superstar, uh, because of, uh, mostly King Kong, the the De Laurentiis '77, and and uh, and Star Wars back to back, having done the, the Cantina guys. So yeah. there was this young guy, you know, named Rick Baker out in California, and you know, it was a long haired guy. And he didn't look like a like an old dude in a, in a lab coat, you know, it, it was like <laughs> a younger person doing this stuff. So that was exciting. I was like, wow, you know, there's young people do this stuff too. I thought it was just a a lot of old timers that worked at the at the on the studio lot you know yeah, uh, yeah yeah so so uh so that was that became the next big pivotal thing was that wave of uh rick baker initially and then others like you know dick smith and and rob Botine and mm-hmm. you know et cetera, et cetera and and something happened in 1980 and 81 it was just like this explosion of of makeup effects movies like altered states and mm-hmm. scanner uh America werewolf, the howling, all that stuff. And it was just, you know, it was this perfect storm. So I, I you know, you know, if you want to use that, you know, I, 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 I jumped on that wave. If you want to use that uh, analogy, <laughs> yeah. you know, I was like, that's what I wanted to do. And that's, that's what I, I became really focused about it. And that's, you know, that's how I was able to, uh, you know, get into it is because I, I just, I didn't really think about much of anything else, you know, I, yeah. You know, I like music and I like you know I, I and and I was into that sort of thing but I was really focused on on you know a goal of like coming to la and working on movies specifically horror type and monster movies
0: Yeah. no dude it's cool man it's obviously you are obsessed I I, I completely sympathize I understand mm. I understand that 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 need to create mm. and understand that that like it takes over everything. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. We,
0: so when you <clears throat> so when you came here, you started to work with Baker. And uh, what did, did you start? Were you in sculpting first or, or makeup work? Uh, or?
1: Actually, uh, you know, uh, I, I should rewind a little bit because it, it, it what what happened was I um, uh, at the time of American Werewolf in London, I, I was still living in Florida, I was still a teenager uh, making masks in my bedroom. And uh, there was a show on on TV. Called PM Magazine. It was one of those like entertainment type shows that from the 80s. You know they have and they interview different stuff from the entertainment world. So they they were doing press for American Werewolf in London mm-hmm. and Rick was on there and I, and so I you know I taped a show. I worked at a, a, a electronic store and that sold you know VCRs, the early VCRs and all that stuff. So I I, I got an early VCR and discounted. You know when I <laughs> I was still a teenager, so I was taping stuff off the TV. So I taped this um this segment that rick was on and at the end it had a post office box number uh of to mail to the station for you know questions and comments that sort of thing right Mm -hmm. and um so i mailed a letter on a fluke with a with a stack of photos of the masks that i had been making uh to to rick here in california so lo and behold uh they actually forwarded the letter to him which was really cool yeah rick got it and and rick like called me at home when I was like still 17, you know, um, like on a Saturday afternoon and my mom picks up the phone and, 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 and she's like, Rick Baker's on the phone. And I thought it was a, a friend of mine, you know, messing with me or something. And I'm like, is this really Rick? And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's really Rick. And I instantly recognized his voice. And, uh, and so he's like, you know, your stuff shows a lot of promise. Keep in touch, you know, um, here's the shop number. And if you have any questions, uh, et cetera, you know, keep in touch. So I would send him pictures of, of my work as, as it was developing. And I had done a lot of copies of, of his stuff. Yeah. And so I, I kind of did a, you know, a male correspondence with him, uh, you know, and sending him pictures of his stuff. And eventually I, I wanted to move out here. So I was I was prepared to come and work for him. And 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 the opportunity arose for me to, to come out when I was 20. So it was like three wow. years later. Wow. wow. Um, so, at 20, I, I packed it up and you know got on a plane and 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 came out here and and you know Rick hired me. It's, it's um so I uh, I you know started out on a film called called Rat Boy, which was which was a Malpaso production. <laughs> it was like a not a, not a well known film, but immediately right after that, um, Rick took on Harry and the Hendersons, yep. which which uh, uh, became like his his you know kind of a signature movie for him at the time. So. Um, I got, I got to do painting and sculpting and, and a variety of different things. And the way that the Rick's set up his shop and the way shops were set up back then, you did a little bit of everything. It wasn't as departmentalized as it is now. Uh, it was like, uh, you were, you were like, a, you know, you worked in a shop. You, you did, you, you, you had to know how to do it all. You knew you knew, you had to know how to do hair work. You had to know how to do sculpting. You needed to know, you know, I mean, there was people that there was some people that were preliminary mold makers and stuff like that, but. But he kind of encouraged for people to kind of know how to do everything, and that and um, so I was doing a little bit of everything, and, and and I was working for you know my mentor, you know, and, and learned more on the job, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: That's cool, man.
1: That's really cool. Yeah.
0: Thank uh, you. Um, <clears throat> so, as you progress through this industry, and you've you've done this for so long, at what point um, did you decide that you wanted to sort of? do your own thing at what point did you feel like you wanted to like open up your own shop or do any of that kind of stuff
1: well i mean um i I, it's the way the especially at the time the way the the industry you know this sort of industry works it's you don't you didn't like immediately leap, leap into opening a shop it was sort of like um i worked i worked from 85 through 90 mostly with rick baker but i was also moonlighting uh, for other companies like fantasy 2 we did it and and um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. stand you know the original ones and uh, so I was bouncing all over the place and it's still kind of like that you know sometimes you do a job for yourself and then sometimes you do a job for another company you know you, you, you freelance for other people so um uh, it's it's it kind of still like that now so i sometimes I take on jobs that are my own you know personal gigs and then there's ones that that I do for other companies you know uh like right now I'm I'm doing a lot of work for spectral motion I have since the first hellboy movie uh yeah. their maiden voyage and so um yeah that's how it is you, you know I, I I take the work as as it comes you know and uh, and fortunately it's it's been you know a thing where I've been I've stayed you know busy since since I planted my feet down here in LA. So that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah, dude, that's a,
0: that's quite a run too, you know, and to, and to stay busy that long, that's awesome. And
1: yeah. I
0: get it. I get the freelance world. I'm fascinated by this stuff. You know, being a hard director myself, I have only worked, uh, back in Boston and back in my hometown. And I work with like a really great team of, you know, like do it yourself, down and dirty sort of, yeah. um, effects guys. And now, I can't really say on air, I could talk to you off air about it, but I can't really say on air who I'm pr- working with, but I'm about to start a big production, big thing with a, with a big company.
1: Awesome.
0: Um, and so I'm curious about a lot of this stuff because um working with uh, someone like you who has been in this business for so long as a younger director, I'm curious uh, the, the process that you go through for it, the process of creation um, and um, you know, how to, get an idea off the page and actually sculpted and sitting in front of you. I'm, I'm fascinated by the whole process. Mm-hmm. So how do you, how do you work if you're working on a new piece? Is it, is it from the script initially? And and, and then is it just sketches or like, how do you get started with what you do?
1: Um, well, I mean, it, it always starts with the script. Uh, right. I mean, the, it, they come to you and and they say, uh, you know, we want to make this thing and hopefully um you're working in a, in a creative situation where they want a lot of your input. You know, they let you design it, and mm-hmm. I, I, I love designing my own stuff. Sometimes uh, a production will already come to you with with a bunch of designs, and which you know that's tougher because you're executing somebody else's design, and sometimes the designs aren't very good too. So yeah. you kind of you know the ideal situation is they come to you and they're like, we want to make this thing, but we don't really know. What we want it to look like yet and um and so that's the most ideal situation i mean that's happened many times i mean we like you know one of my favorite uh uh, you know a couple of my favorite film experiences were with directors that that they came in and they're like they had parameters but they basically wanted you to unleash your imagination and come up with something and you know one of those cases was i worked on both of the hellboy movies and Specifically on the second one, um, mm-hmm. Guillermo had this Angel of Death character in it. I love that one. And, uh, That's so and, amazing, by the way. So, yeah. so I was assigned to, you know, design and, and you know, make that creature and spearhead the, the, all the, the way it looked. So Guillermo had some, some rough sketches of like a thing with wings and, and with, a, with a double set of wings and, and uh, um, he wanted eyeballs in the wings. He didn't want eyes in the, in the skull. Uh, or eye sockets, and um, and then he wanted you know he had this design meeting where he brought everybody, all the designers uh, who were working on the picture, and was like, okay, here's what I want you to do. Think about, think of all the monsters of the, of this these types that you've seen before, like for example, the Angel of Death you've seen in other movies, and I don't mm-hmm. want you to do that. Like just pretend <laughs> that they never existed, you know, and like oh, yeah, come yeah. up with something completely original. So that that right there is the best springboard. Is when somebody tells you that. You know, and they're, they're like, think of, you know, don't do anything we've seen before, and come up with something entirely original. Like, and so I was like, started pulling all this reference from, from uh, uh, you know, Byzantine church sculptures and, and and all kinds of crazy stuff to sort of come up with this design. And I designed it in, in, a, in a clay maquette. And mm-hmm. again, that's that's the, the I, that's the situation that you want. You want somebody who to, to say, unleash your mind and come up with the craziest thing you could think of because um you know the the, the what's and the opposite of that is when is uh you, you do see a lot of like copycat design stuff where a production will will come to you with with too much reference and like mm-hmm. and they want you to already make it look like a creature that you've seen before and mm-hmm. uh, that is 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 a, a much bigger challenge actually than coming up with something original because you're forced to, you know, your your hand is being forced into copying something that already exists, and 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 you know, I mean, as you probably can understand, that's not as fun, <laughs> you know. I- well, dude,
0: it's fascinating because from hearing it from your perspective is interesting, and then uh, I I might be able to give you a little bit of an insight of what I've been going through. So I can't be too specific, but I'm I'm working with a company, and we we have a creature in our flick that. Um, I haven't seen before and and I'm going through the process of trying to figure out what this creature is and it's very difficult to do because it's something that hasn't been done before and I usually work really well within constraints. You know, I usually set up my own fence of like rules and regulations and then I could build within that and this one's been particularly mm-hmm. difficult to do and so the what I try to do as a director is I go, okay, functionally, this is what this creature needs to do. It functionally needs to do this, 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 and this. And this is how it needs to integrate with the actors. And this is the sort of sequences that need to happen. And I try to come up with that sort of functionality. And then working with a a production company, the production company tends to want to have as many (laughs) concepts as possible. And so you go through this really strange back and forth process Mm -hmm. with a company where they're like pulling references and they're doing stuff. And you're like, yeah, but I really want it to be something new and fresh. And so it's this fascinating balance that I'm trying to figure out now where, you know, I'd love to get to a point where I was working with someone like you, where I can just go in there and go, this is functionally what the creature needs to fucking do. And this is how I think a silhouette should look. And this is how I think the creature should be able to move through that space. And then allow someone like you who has spent so much time dealing with like anatomy of creatures and anatomy Mm -hmm. of monsters to sort of play in that world because it starts to get untangible for me if I'm just pulling references from other like what are we going to try to recreate the Angel yeah. of Death or are we going to try to recreate Frankenstein like yeah. what do we fucking doing yeah. here?
1: well, I you mean know? that that that's that's problematic and and I think in these times like in the last decade uh, I think because the exchange of information uh, on in text and in email is so fast and also too you know yeah. everybody can look up something you can type in like, uh, you know, one eyed creature, for example, and, and then suddenly, you know, all these things come up in a, in an image search. Right. So then the problem. that's a, yeah. that's really problematic because then people are hitting you with a bunch of examples of other stuff rather than trying to come up with something out of the box. And, and, um, you know, Rick Baker, you know, famously tells a story of, of, uh, working with John Landis on American Werewolf in London. And John was like, he came to Rick's shop a handful of times and was like, I want you to make this four-legged hellhound, you know, beast from hell thing. And and Rick's like, went away Mm -hmm. and made him a four-legged, you know, beast from hell, right? And, you know, John may have showed up and taken a Polaroid here and there just for reference. But, you know, he was working on his script. He was working on his shot list. He was working... He was doing his portion of the job, you know, right? And and he was letting Rick make the monster, you know. It's like, uh, and and he, Rick himself will tell you that that in the last 10 years, even before he retired, that type of filmmaking almost completely disappeared, you know, where the director lets you do your yeah. thing. You know, they have an idea and they give you the, the seed of the idea, but they let the monster maker make the monsters. And that's, you know, that's become more and more difficult I think in this age, because everybody can pull up a gazillion reference and say, "Make the take the feet off of this thing, and the head off of this thing, and the earlobes off of that thing," you know, uh, and and, yeah. and, uh, and that yeah. I think that's problematic because you have you know then you end up with a monster that's just puzzle pieces, and it doesn't have like a cohesive uh, feel. Um, so. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, I I feel that way. I totally feel the same thing that you're feeling. And then when you start to watch these movies, everything just feels yeah, derivative. Yeah, it's, it's a big and you, you, problem. you really, watch it. You know. I think
1: uh, you know a big problem in general right now in in, in a lot of films is originality because uh, I think a lot of times people see something in another movie and they're like, make it look like that, rather than uh, trying to come up with yeah. something entirely new. Um, I, I'm working. Yeah. I'm working yeah. actually kind of on a on a lower budget. I work on. Movies vary from massive budgets, you know, like Ghostbusters, Afterlife, you know, um, I work on stuff like that mm-hmm. all the way down to lower budget stuff. So I'm working on um, with a director that i worked with a couple times named Mike Mendez. I'm working on something that he's doing uh, right mm-hmm. now. And Mike's great because he's more like, make me this. <laughs> and then he just kind of, you know, I send him pictures and he's like, badass, you know. <laughs> and it's like, it, that's the best because you know and if you have you know you 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 give the artist the parameters right because uh, it's your story ultimately that's director and the writer's story um but you know uh um you wouldn't tell a lighting guy like where to put his lights you know it's like you know et cetera, etc etc you know so so if you you want to have be in a situation where you're you're you are treated like a like a, a, a you know a um a, a necessary you know a creative individual. You're not just a pair of hands. that's executing someone else's idea. You're actually like a person who has, that's going to put character and thought into something because ultimately a creature is, is just as much an actor in your film as the lead actor in your movie. If the movie's called the thing, what's who's the star of the movie, the thing, <laughs> right? You know, so, so it has, to be, it has to be approached that way. It, it's not just a prop or something that yeah. you wheel out on set, you know, uh, it, 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 um, yeah. it has to be treated like a character it has a backstory what does this thing do what is what is the thought process of this particular monster what's a particular creature like what's what's its history why does it do this why would it have these type of mandibles why would it have this type of locomotion etc cetera, etc cetera. you have to treat it like a character that in, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a being that, that's that's alive. And that, thats where the I think that's where the best stuff comes out of because Alien, you know, original and, and the mm-hmm. thing and and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But those are you know great examples of like you have a, a really strong kind of backstory to what the creature is. It's not just a monster going around killing people.
0: Yeah right. It is time to talk about sponsors. It is time to talk about the men and women that support the show. And as you know, we're doing it a little bit differently this year. Um, today's episode, uh, custom tailored uh, to access all sorts of different folks, because as we talk about creating monsters and filmmaking, there are so many different tools that you need to access your your inner creativity uh first up let's talk about how you're gonna light these creatures how are you going to uh barely show the details of these monsters that you create and if you've been looking at my storyboard work i haven't been able to show some of my new stuff but i spend a lot of time rendering lighting and i love hard light i love hard beams of light Um, and i'm a big fan of Fresnels. i'm a big fan of source 4 units and as you know if you guys are nerds for the lighting world i'm about to start talking about our sponsor on the show the people over at etc all right and if you don't know what etc is they create amazing lighting fixtures that you've seen a lot when you go to see concerts so a lot of the spotlight fixtures a lot of the backlight fixtures those are usually Source for units And in the past, the ones that I like to use are still the older ones, which are really cool. They're tungsten-based, and I can dim them up and down. But they make new ones now, which are LED-based, which means less power. They don't get as hot. Uh, They're, like, very focused color. Um, Beautiful units. Uh, And I want to get my hands on some of their, their LED Source 4 units, if you're listening, ETC. But I do have a Monster Fresnel unit here in my place which I've used to take photos of Gina. I'm gonna to use to throw outside of a window through a diffusion. It's great. Less power, lower power pull. Instead of me having to, to dedicate an entire circuit to running this light, um, I'm using it and it's LED based so I can run more lights on a specific circuit, right? Which is super cool. So let me let me do one of their reads here. Uh, let's try this one. Studio lighting has advanced more than just in color, quality, and brightness. In in an increasingly mobile world, it has been fascinating to see how many manufacturers are bringing wireless technology to the fold. ETC has done just that with their FOS-4 studio fixture line with NFC and City Theatrical's Multiverse technology. Weird. Uh, NFC makes it possible to send and receive fixture information from the convenience of your phone or tablet okay let me translate that you can control the light you can control the output you can control the quality of this unit through an app on your phone Fucking rad right so these guys do it with their fresnel so i have their uh fos slash four fresnel it's a great unit head on over to etc connect uh and check it out right now so that is uh, the link is etcconnect.com/backslash/love-the-process. It is in the description of this episode. etcconnect.com/backslash/love-the-process. And check out these light units. Uh, like I said, I've got that for now. I love it. It's great, um, and I'm gonna try to get some more. So really cool shit. Making the kit look great. Trying to help Gina out with her lighting. Having all this stuff kicking around is really nice. It's like having bigger and better paintbrushes for that kit. You know what I mean? Uh, All right, also supporting the show, our good friends over at Puget Systems. Uh, If you are in the marketplace right now to buy a new computer, I know it's an investment. You go online to some of the larger companies and you're like, Jesus, how much is this costing? And I only get like three choice options. I don't know, right? And then when you look at that price tag, and then you get that equipment and it shows up in these fancy felt boxes with all the graphic design and everything. It's like, how much did the box itself cost? Why am I buying a box that I'm literally taking this machine out of and then throwing that box out? You ever notice how hard it is to throw those boxes away when they're so pretty and you put them in a fucking closet somewhere and they just take up space and collect dust, right? Why pay for that? Put all your money towards the the actual hardware. Build a computer that works for you. Head on over to PugetSystems.com and choose a system based upon the software you're going to use, right? So you can choose that software. And what I love about Puget is that they specifically, once you choose that stuff, the next step is that you talk to a Puget technician. So it says here, every project begins with an interview conducted by one of Puget's tech consultants to understand your exact needs. When's the last time you fucking called up Apple and said, hey guys, this is what I got in mind, and Apple gave a shit? Because they don't. They absolutely don't. This is a company that cares. So if you're gonna spend that money, if you've saved up those funds, if you're taking out a loan, and you're like, look, I need to have an edit suite, I need to build a better edit facility, I've got to the point where people want to hire me to oversee editors, right? Maybe you want to open up a post-production facility. I know a lot of you listening are color uh, folks and people that work at like Company 3 and all these different spots. You guys are gonna have to update your tech. Do me a favor, just check out Puget. Head on over there, talk to them, and look at the difference in customer support, quality, and what it is that you get. You know what? I can't say enough great things about these guys. Head on over to Puget Systems, and just drool over the machines that you're saving up for right now. Uh, Okay, also supporting the show, friends over at Jambox. You heard in the last episode how excited I am about these guys. How many of you signed up? Did you subscribe? If you haven't subscribed, subscribe now. Head on over to jambox.io and change the way your projects sound change the quality of your stuff. So many of you cinematographers out there, if you weren't convinced by the by the, by the cinematographer of Ghostbusters to not cut a reel with music, subscribe to Jambox cuz you're going to find tracks that feel as good as the weekend track that you've been, that everybody's fucking using and you're going to find a Jambox track that you can get the stems for, like the one we're hearing now that you'll get the stems for and you can cut that fucking reel the wrong way but you can cut that reel to music and actually have an emotional impact because with the stems you can design it to go with the visuals you know what i'm saying it's huge these guys supply music to the biggest hollywood trailers to the biggest hollywood films they've been in the business for a long time they know what they're doing and they care about musicians it is super inexpensive and if any of the sponsors that i've had on the show i'm telling you right now these guys will change your quality of work for no money fucking as a content creator 9.99 a month for personal projects youtube podcast sign up for nine bucks ten bucks right now and change the way your stuff sounds if you're a student it's six bucks if you're someone that is doing commercial work it is $19.99 a month All right. Head on over to jambox.io and check it all out. So that's jambox.io. I'm telling you, I get excited about these guys because they're going to change your work. When you guys start sending me pieces, they're going to sound better. All right. That's it. Those are our sponsors for today. Let's get back into it. Obviously, uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife was amazing, and the 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 dogs looked fucking phenomenal in that. Um, what is the difference between uh, working on like a large budget like that and on one of the smaller budgets? Is it just the amount of resources that you have at your disposal? Like,
1: yeah, it, it's 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 typically budget, and it's also time. Yeah. Uh, so, like, you know, when you're working on a low but lower budget movie, um, you only you don't have that much. You might have you know three weeks to make something or or a couple weeks to make something, uh, whereas you know something like Ghostbusters Afterlife, we we worked on that. I want to say for about four or five months. Wow. Uh, so and but it's a big you know labor intensive creature with a you know mechanical interior and and there's a you know it's a lot of hundred pounds of clay to sculpt that thing, and uh, so it's it's a it's a much bigger, more involved thing. Um, and uh, um, then you know with a lower budget movie. It's like, okay, you have, you might have a, a week to make something or three weeks. So if I, I'll take on lower budget stuff, if, if it's a really super creative idea, like for example, the thing yeah. I'm working on for Mike Mendez right now, I absolutely love this thing that he's doing. And, you know, again, you know, you know, the deal, like, just like you, I can't talk about it, but, um, of course it's, uh, you know, I am like, I'm really excited about making it because, well, a I like Mike as a, as a as a director and as a, as a person. Um, but I also just like, really like the concept and I was like, okay, this is really cool. I want to, I want to do this. I want to make this. So, and you just, you figure out a way to, to, um, to do something within the budget that, that you have you, you know, you can, you can, uh, mold, so to speak, how something is made. If you know what the budget is, then you know the parameters that you have and then you can kind of like work backwards, like from that, that's your target budget. Right. And then you just work mm-hmm. backwards and you, and and thinking of like, how can I construct this to, within the parameters of the budget? And it, it could be different. Yeah. So if, if, yeah. if you're excited about it and you want and you want to make, make this thing, you know, you'll figure out a way to do it.
0: Yeah. Hell yeah, mm-hmm. man. Yeah. Cause it always comes down to that passion and that hunger and, and, and if someone reads that script, if you re- read the script and you envision that character, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. As a director, that's what I'm looking yeah. for, you know, because most of the time, you know, as a director, you're expected to have all the answers. And truth be told, we don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, like, you're looking to surround yourself with people that are bringing answers and bringing their life experiences. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for you, like 36 years of creating fucking monsters. Mm-hmm. Man,
1: like, Yeah.
0: Like just the just the general understanding that you must have not only with clay, but of like all the different materials that you're working with and understanding like the rigid, rigidity and like how flexible things are and, yeah. and all
1: just, that not stuff not is Not just valuable. the nuts and bolts of, of uh, making a monster, but the process of making a movie. I mean, I've been, you know, I've been on sets with, you know, Quentin Tarantino, with Robert Rodriguez, with Guillermo del Toro, uh, mm-hmm. with, with Mike Nichols, you know, I've, I've worked with really really big directors and 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 you also have to understand the nuts and bolts of filmmaking it's not just merely just the nuts and bolts of what materials but you you know you you need to really understand how this all is going to cut together you need to understand you know how the angles work and what's going to cut and what's going to not cut what can you use here it's it's you know Mm -hmm. making a movie is a magic trick it's any way you slice it right so Figure yeah. out how, what are the, what are the mechanics of this magic trick and how does it come together to make the shot great? Cause it's not just, yeah. it's not just, you know, everybody doing their little job. It's like everybody understanding the other person's job as well and working as a team. That That's, that's, that's where it really, that's where it really gets cool and collaborative.
0: Yeah. And, and a lot of like, that's where the magic definitely happens is when you start to see those puzzle pieces fit together yeah. and. And if, if you're, you're right, yeah. if you have a team of folks that understand how everybody's pieces fit into it, then they can actually improve their work by saying, oh, I can actually stretch this a little bit because I know the lighting is only going to be like this and I could do this and that it totally makes yeah. sense, man. It totally makes sense. Yeah, man. yeah. Um, yeah, man. So, all right. So then uh, it's so I love the work that you did with Guillermo. I think that stuff's amazing. And I've always been a huge Guillermo fan anyways, and I love his like his his love for monsters and his love for the soul of monsters and their creation of monsters. And you talked a little bit about it. So he just came in and essentially gave you guys some sketches and was like, just run with this thing. Like, how did you design the, the angel of death?
1: Well, it, it, it was like, he has a, he has this notebook where he does like little doodles. They're uh-huh. not even sketches. It's, it's sort of like where he writes notes and, and he does little doodles and stuff. And he um, kind of, you know, had this like little doodle, like a little silhouette of, of of what the thing looked like, but it didn't have a face. It didn't have anything. So um, I, I like to design in clay because I, I I like it's 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 tactile and very you know you can see around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sketches are fine, you know, for preliminary stuff. But I I still think that one of the problems with sketches and one of the problems with um, with now Photoshop and 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 other digital ways of, you know, ZBrush and digital ways. Of, a lot of times, um, uh, you know, there's a tendency to make to people to get wowed by the art yeah. of it. Like, like the drawing is really good, but the, but is the design good? You follow what I'm saying? You okay? It's like, it's like, um, you know, I've seen people where, where, where you, you know, you see a design for something and they, they did this really dramatic illustration, you know, with really cool lighting and, and, and it's just, it has, it's a dramatic piece. It looks, it, it, the illustration is great. But then you, you study the design and you're like, this design isn't very good. Mm. So I, I like to, when I sculpt in clay, it's all about the design. And, and you're not, you're not uh, um, uh, idealizing it by putting lighting on it and all this stuff. You know, it's, it, there it is and you can look around it. So I, with in the case of the angel of death, he had this little doodle that literally was like a little like a little scribble, you know, um, and uh, but then, like I said earlier, we had this design meeting and he's like, come up with some stuff, you know, we, you know, do, you know, think outside the box. What, what can you come up with? So I, I start looking at um, I have, you know, massive art book collection of, mm-hmm. of classical sculpture and et cetera, et cetera. And you start browsing that stuff for like interpretations of, of death um, in, in all in different cultures and stuff like that and I found these these um, uh, really cool angels that were in these Byzantine churches. Cool. And they were really super ornate. They almost had like this kind of armor on and stuff. Um, and so I thought that'd be kind of cool to do with the chest where it almost looks like faces. If you look at like ancient armor, um, it, they always do these motifs on it. They're almost like lions and things and faces, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. sculpted the armor. So I thought that would be really, really cool to do that. but it organically where it was like you know it 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 looks like armor but it's actually the thing's skin and so i thought it would be really cool since he's this ancient angel of death that he would be really really dried and cracked Hmm. and and you know very aged and an aged sort of like this kind of skirt thing that he's wearing um and um and angels in history in in a lot of historical not historical but you know what i mean like a lot of folklore of of angels um they're actually are both sexes they're, 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 uh, um, androgynous. Yeah. Okay, you know? Yep. So, so, um, so I thought that was kind of a cool angle to take that sort of folklore idea that angels are, are, are neither male or female. They're, they're actually ancient angels or have are androgynous. So I thought that'd be kind of cool if it had sort of a, an androgynous feel like you, it wasn't particularly male or particularly female. So it's like this el- elegant, uh, looking thing and then um doug jones who played the angel of death Mm -hmm. is is, you know really took it even further with his performance like the 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 gracefulness of it and all that sort of stuff like really sold it that's also part of your creature design too like you hope that you have a performer in there that can bring the thing to life it can't just be like you know hey we got joe the stuntman over here or or (laughs) hey let's have my brother play the the monster, you know, or something. It it has to be a trained individual, like a person that knows, you know, uh, choreography and dance, or or something that can give a gracefulness or or an intensity to it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, that that's that's half of it. I think almost is is like as a great performance uh, of of the creature, and you know, Doug's like a great example of that. He's he he, he every creature that he does is like it, it feels like it's a living, breathing thing because he pumps that
0: performance into it. Did you know it was going to be Doug before you started sculpting it? And did that sort of...
1: Yeah, I, mean, I, I believe so. If memory serves me well, I do think that Guillermo already had Doug Jones in mind for that. But, you know, uh, yeah, I want to say yes, but you know, it's some of it is a little fuzzy now. Sure, so, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Of course, yeah, I,
0: I, I guess what I was just curious if you knew what the physique of your actor was, if that would be sort of, you know, contributing to what the physique of the creature was, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, well that,
1: that does have, that does play into it because, um, if you know, uh, I, I mean, with the angel of death, because, because he's representing death, you want it skeletal and it has to be lean, mm-hmm. uh, and elegant. Um, so naturally they're probably going to cast somebody like that, but, uh, uh, and and but if you do have the an actor in mind ahead of time, that does make a big difference. I mean, you can kind of design it based on the actor's physique. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we, knew the, we knew the Angel of Death was going to be lean and, and and gaunt and all that stuff uh, by nature. But uh, um, but yeah, I mean, it does it, it does certainly doesn't hurt to know who it's going to go on too.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating, man. I I've never worked with clay before, so I'm I'm curious about the process when you get started with this, I'm I'm sure at this point you've had years and years of experience. So you kind of have like a rhythm for how you get started with it, but how do you not just stare at a lump of clay? Is it just all that reference work and research that you do ahead of time that helps sort of push you in a direction?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I do put like an, you know, an immense amount of thought into the design, even before I start pushing clay. I mean, sometimes like, if I have like this kind of, if I have, if I can visualize it, um, it goes way faster. If I already have kind of like this rough sketch in my brain mm-hmm. of what I want it to look like, I could I could design something like in a, in a couple of hours. And then sometimes I'll even just I'll even do clay sketches. Like it won't be fully finished or anything, but you just do these kind of rough thumbnail, you know, uh, quick clay sketch sketches to see if you like the character. And and I'm I'm a firm believer of like. You know, the details isn't really what makes the creature. What makes the creature is the silhouette and, yes. the, and the, 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 the graphic nature of it. You can look at it from across the room. like Take Giger's Alien, for example, which is like a, a, probably one of the best examples of, of any monster design ever. Mm-hmm. And look at a photo of that thing that's the size of a postage stamp. And it looks great. Yeah. It doesn't be blown up when you see it really close up and you see all the stuff that's going on, It, it you, you're like, wow, this is really cool. It has an incredible detail, but, but. It should read as a really strong graphic design. It should read as something that immediately, like, just the silhouette of the thing strikes you. Yeah. Um, and is so that the,
0: is that what you meant when you were saying that oftentimes when you look at a sketch, it's just a really good sketch, but that you're looking for a good design is is that part of the parameters of what a good creature design is, or is it also yeah, like yeah. the I movement mean, and?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it, you. It has to it has to cut a really nice silhouette. Yeah. It has to, it has to strike you. Well, you know, whether you're looking at it from 100 feet away or whether you're looking at it from 10 inches away, it, it has to it has to have a bold, um, uh, you know, it has a I have to have a bold design sense that something about it that grabs you. Yeah, um, it's, you know, any 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 good creature design does that, I think, you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon is a, is a you know, one of the earliest examples of an incredible monster design, same, mm-hmm. same thing with, with the Frankenstein monster. You could take those those images and and see them in a, in a magazine in a tiny little postage size stamp size image, and you know what it is. Yeah. yeah. like it's because it's such a bold uh, graphic image that if it's tiny, you can you it, it still it still reads as as uh, as what what it is. It's because it, it's that strong. It yeah. Is, you don't need to see a big clear photo of it. But when you do finally see it, it's amazing because the details are just as great. So I say capture the capture of a bold silhouette, you know, kind of first and then and then work your way from there.
0: It makes a lot of sense, man. It's good to hear you say these things because these have been in my gut for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And um, the other thing that I have long conversations about are the things that instill fear into mass quantities of folks you know what i mean whether you're talking about like sharp teeth you're talking about like sharp edges are there specific things that you know that you will put on a creature that will scare the fuck out of people
1: (laughs) well um uh that's a tough one because scary you know what's scary to one person isn't necessarily you know scary to someone else so um the the i always feel that what makes uh a, cre- a creature could be just plain scary to look at like and it, that it's interesting like you know of course the, the alien you know is, is, is a frightening looking creature it doesn't have any eyes mm-hmm. it has a very cleared thing on its head and and the, the big silver teeth and and this kind of crazy tubes that are no one had ever seen anything that looked like that prior to that point yeah and and, and it's it's um that's not that easy to do you know to, to you know to like come up with something, you know, as incredible as, as what Giger created is, you know, it's not like that can come out of, you know, just by snapping your fingers. Yeah. Um, so, but, but what makes the alien truly scary is the context of how it the, 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 how it's used in the film. Um, I, you know, that's what, if something is just standing there, you can en- enjoy it as a piece of art. Like it's beautiful, mm-hmm. you know, it's grotesquely beautiful, but what really makes that, Creature so frightening, you know, is that 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 a lot of it is just the the atmosphere and the situation that it's in. It's it it's the it's the movie itself too that lends itself to being frightening, right? Not mm-hmm. merely just the creature design. Yeah, uh, even though it's a pretty damn scary creature because it's like it has this elongated head with a huge, you know, tongue thing that comes out that that you know pierces your skull and and um you know I mean they really. <laughs> They they knocked it out of the park with that one. I mean, you know, it's it's probably as perfect of a of a monster, a terrifying monster as you can think of.
0: What I love about what they did with that first movie, and uh, and I this this is something that I think is what a lot of the success of the creature films from the eighties and the you know maybe the early nineties had with them is that. It's all about how you reveal the creature. It's all about how much of the creature you see and when you see these different aspects of it and you you can really tell the difference between the more successful films that show you less and then the films that uh are more sort of effects porn if you will where like all of a sudden the creature steps into full light and you're just sitting on an edit or cut that you should have cut like 12 frames off of that. Why did why yeah. did you continue? And oftentimes you can tell the difference between uh, a director who's obsessed with the creature effects and wants to sort of show them off. And then a director who's more focused on the suspense around the creature and leaving a lot of, to an imagination. Cause if you look at the actual, the the costume and everything from the first alien, I mean, if he was running around in broad daylight, it wouldn't have been as
1: scary as, well, as I mean, they even kind of, in a way they sort of blow it even in the movie. If you remember, like, like, you see that creature and you're only seeing bits of pieces of it and, and it's kind of fused in with a lot of the oily gritty cables and all that yeah. stuff ship right and and um but then at the very end when they blow it out of the hatch it's floating in space and you can kind of see it looks like a man you know yeah yeah, yeah it feels like they didn't do it justice by suddenly having it float in, in black space um, where you're not you're not hiding it in any way so you know you take you take something that's like one of the greatest designs of all time, but you also kind of um, show it in a way that, that probably would have been better suited, not showing it like that. I'm, I'm actually really surprised at that decision in the film to suddenly see the floating out there. And 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 then you can see that it has human like arms and legs and all that stuff. You can kind of see it a little bit more. And I mean, it's still, you know, it's still brilliant. The the design is just flawless, mm-hmm. but it, it that's just a good example of what you're talking about suddenly you see this thing head to toe and I think that's one of the problems with uh, with CGI creatures is mm-hmm. that um, they can now because of CGI a creature can now jump all over the place really kinetically and do all this wild stuff and bounce off the walls and you know but the problem with that is that you're seeing it too much you know and I think that's one of the uh, one of the reasons why the CGI stuff doesn't work is because they tend to show it fully head to toe. Yeah. And like, and even, even with a, with a, with, even if you can do that, doesn't mean that you should. <laughs> well, it's like, it's like, you don't have to, you, I don't think you should ever see a creature fully standing from head to toe because uh, it blows the mystery of it. If you, if you see too much of it. It's, yeah, better, it, it's better to see it in pieces.
0: Yeah. And it also changes the perspective. Like I'm, my constant struggle is to, is to maintain the perspective of whoever's going through the terror. And, mm-hmm. Uh, I don't care if you're dealing with, you know, an alien or if you're dealing with, you know, uh, you know, landing gear falling from the sky and crushing somebody. When something happens to you and you experience that, you don't really see it from that third perspective. You're sort of in the middle of it. So you're only catching details and motion blurs and vivid little moments um that I think certain directors do a good job of capturing on screen. I think once you start to get into sort of that, omnipresent sort of third person floating way back and seeing these creatures run and jump around you're not in the terror of it you're sort of ex- observing it with the audience um yeah. and it just gives you an opportunity to be disconnected from that from the terror and from what that creature is doing and so then you you judge it for what it does it's like ah oh, the movement's look kind of fucking weird it's like I, I really on on further review of Alien Covenant, which was his last one that he did, I enjoy that film. But there are sequences where that creature's on the outside of that spaceship. Yeah. I don't feel t- that's not t- terrifying to me at all with it being no. on the outside. It's no, like
1: you're, you're seeing too much of it. it. It's like you're killing the mystery of it. You know, it's all about it's all about uh, creating tension and and, uh, and and keeping something mysterious. Yeah. Um, ultimately, what you know, the the thing that's hiding in the corner in the dark is is a lot scarier than something that's just standing there yeah uh, it's it's it, it's like yeah you you don't ever want to show this stuff too much that you want to keep a little bit of mystery behind it you know just show it enough yeah. Um, it, yeah it works within your story um yeah the second you have it step out and like there it is you know it's like you see it from head to toe it's it's just not as as uh, as scary as something that you see little bits and pieces of in the first alien is is like a great example of that, like I mean, you know, a lot of times people are like, can you make a monster that's as scary as, as the alien? Well, you know, a lot of what's scary about the alien is the movie, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> that, like the way they present it in the film. That's yeah. you know, yeah. it's 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 a, it's like a magic trick. Like you have to have all the parts of the magic trick. You know, yeah. you pull a rabbit out of your hat. Well, you don't. Have, when you pull a rabbit out of your hat, you don't just have the rabbit. You have the hat and the table. And, and et cetera, et cetera, and the lighting that makes it believable and the breakaway, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, so where the things hide in the chamber underneath the table, et cetera. You know, it's like you need all those elements, uh, um, you know, to, to pull off a magic trick and that's what making movies is, is a magic trick.
0: Yeah, and it's funny as we talk about this, it just feels like the, the emphasis needs to be on the environment that is creating unease. It's like when when you have, um, uh, oh my God, what's his name, who ends up flopping up on the table because he's choking and he's having stomach problems. And right off the bat, if that was just you hanging out with your family and someone started to choke, that's the horrific experience. You're watching somebody struggle to breathe. You're watching someone struggle with internal pain and something that, you can't fix something that you can't handle as an individual. Cause you're not a doctor. You can't open them up. You don't know what's happening. And so within that, that anxiety, which is a uh, anxiety that we can all relate to suddenly Ridley has this fucking thing like burst out of t- its chest. Yes. And so it's, it's almost like the environment itself was the scariest element because in reality, it's this rubber little fucking worm thing that comes popping yeah,
1: out. It's Yeah, it's this. it's the setup. Is what makes it scary. It's like Alfred Hitchcock has his famous um, little film, short film when he's talking about suspense, right? Yep. And he says he says, if you have a character walk into a room and a bomb goes off, all you're gonna get is that one second of shock of the bomb going off. But what makes it suspenseful is you have the character walk into the room, you show there's a table, underneath the table is the bomb, and there's a clock, and the clock is ticking. Mm-hmm. And the ticking is really what what's more frightening than the bomb going off. So so it, it, it's a, it's a similar scenario with the with a, with, a, with a creature. If you just have a creature just step up out of nowhere, uh, it's it's not going to have the same impact as if you have all that build up or the chestburster scene, for example. Um, there's there's a lot of tension and build up, and you know there's all this anxiety of between the characters and all that stuff, and then the guy starts choking, and it, that's the perfect example of the ticking time bomb theory of alfred hitchcock it's like you know it's your the ticks the tick 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 up to the explosion is is what makes it frightening and and then and you then when you deliver with the explosion the explosion feels 10 times more powerful because you have all that build up leading up to it. Yeah, and it,
0: like as a director in that genre, that's my job. I mean, the entire film is supposed to be that build and release of tension, build release of tension. That's that's the roller coaster ride all the way around. it. And um, when you're, when I, this has been a great conversation because. What happens is, is I, I feel like when you, when I start to create something, if I start to create a story, there needs to be a monster, there needs to be this creature, and when you're writing something and you're working on something, it needs to be something that is fresh and new and scary and original, but it also needs to be something that is that is uh, hitting on all these fears that we all share and we all understand, and it has to sort of appeal to a broader audience as far as the scare is concerned. So it's this really difficult process of trying to create the perfect storm of of scariness um, and, you know, trying to design these things without the assistance of someone like you, <laughs> it seems like an impossible task mm-hmm. oftentimes. So it's just nice to hear your process, man. It's nice to hear what you're focused on. And just by listening to what... It's nice to hear an effects guy go, it's more important how you show the creature than it is how cool the creature looks and how awesome...
1: The, the... Well, it's an equal it's an equal, it's, it, it's an equal uh, you know thing like you, 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 it has to, there has to be a deliver it has to be delivered on both ends so yeah yeah it, it, it kind of meets in the middle you make a really cool creature but you also have to have a, that that, um, that tension and, and suspense and fears and atmosphere and etc that like and then those two things collide and you capture an easy takes uh, massive team effort to do stuff like that.
0: All right, guys, there it is, uh, today's episode. want to just apologize really quick for the audio dropout there at the end. We were connecting with Norman over the internet, and sometimes it gets glitchy. Um, but we really didn't lose anything at all. It was just us saying goodbye. Um, so hope you guys enjoyed the episode, and I want to give a big shout-out and thank you to VidAffair. Uh, that is vidaffair.com. If you're a content creator that has created short films, maybe you've done a web series, and you're looking to get revenue from it, you're looking to charge for it, there are a bunch of different options out there, and a bunch of these places charge you per click. Vidaffair, I did some research. These guys are the least expensive with the most options for you as the creator, uh, which is what is really great is that they just uh, charge you to upload, so uh, you can upload one of your pieces for less than six bucks. And it'll last up there for a year. And then you can set all your own prices. Um, why doesn't Vitifair charge a percentage? Since Vitifair's variable cost is based on streaming and storing service, storage services, which are tied to file size, we believe that it's fairest to base our fee on that. A streaming platform shouldn't demand more money for their service simply because the content creator uh, priced it higher. So that means that they're not charging you more based upon the price that you're charging for your content. Does that make sense? Head on over to vidafair.com and check it out. V-I-D-A-F-A-I-R.com and read through their stuff, see if it works for you. Uh, they seem to be, uh, like I said, the most affordable, the most fair uh, hosting platform out there. Uh, and a lot of people don't know about it. So we're excited to introduce you to them here on the show. So there it is, today's episode. You know, what was so nice about it was just hearing him say a lot of the theories that I already had in my head, which was nice. It's just nice hearing somebody that has been designing creatures for 36 years say things like, the silhouette is important. Say things like, it's better not to see it all on screen. It's the entire process that makes the creature scary. It's all these different departments that make the creature scary. It isn't just makeup design that does so. And we've talked about this multiple times on the show. What do you know? You should learn a bit about everything if you want to do something in film. Right? Makes sense. Because then you can really push the boundaries of the work that you're doing as an individual, understanding how it integrates with someone else's work makes a lot of sense to me. Ah, good episode. Very excited about it. Oh, yes. So, a uh, lot, of, lot of great episodes on the way. Uh, recording this a bit ahead of time, so I don't know what has come out yet. Maybe you've already heard them yet, but we're interviewing some of the best comic book artists in the industry. Uh, we're talking to producers. We're talking to directors. We're talking to actors. If there's someone that you want to have on the show... If there's a specific kind of technician, if there's a specific kind of person, maybe you have access to somebody that you think would be great for the show, drop me a note on Instagram. Send me over, uh, DM, DM me, slide slide into my DMs, (laughs) is that what they say? Uh, And send me your uh, suggestions and I will see if it'll work for the show. I'll see if we can get in touch with them. Um, I, I do it all the time, so it does work. I do respond to you guys. You know it. Um, Well, that's it. I don't want to rant and rave. I got to record a whole other episode. My voice is waning. So I'm going to let you go. Thanks for listening. Hope you guys enjoy the music. Thank you to all of our musicians that continue to support the show as we push into the new year. Lots of new music that you're hearing on the show. We'll be sure to tell you all about it. You'll find everything you need in the description of this episode. Or you can head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com and click on today's episode page where I will post supplemental material, trailers to movies, all sorts of stuff. Everything you need. Look at all the shit that we do for you for little to no money. (laughs) You're welcome. Thanks, everybody, and I will see you next Tuesday.